Welcome to There Is More To Our Story podcast, brought to you by Salty Gathering, a non-profit research house, event space, magazine, and now podcast. It is here we get to share the voices of indigenous leaders, medicine women, knowledge keepers, academics, researchers, activists and speakers contributing to this knowledge weaving space, gaining a better understanding of who we are, where we have come from and where we can go to next. You can join us deeper inside of our Soul Seed House. Here we are providing the most comprehensive library of deep feminine and earth-based knowledge, inviting people to become the researcher of their own stories, their own lineage and their own ancestry, radically shifting the academic model of researchers going to study other people as outsiders. You can also join us for one of our events. We have a traveling yearly gathering that moves to a new country and culture each time by invitation. We'll be returning in the fall of 2021. You can also join us for one of our events, our retreats here in Costa Rica called Medicine is Our Nature. All information will be shared first for Soul Seed House members, but keep checking back to the website for all updates. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this work, then consider joining our Patreon community for as little as a dollar a month. You can also support by one-time donation directly on the website or consider becoming a Patreon Bloom Fund member. It is here you get to contribute a substantial amount to a research focus theme country or culture a place where we need to bring greater awareness to and a place that is usually underfunded we're so incredibly honored and grateful for all the support we've gathered on this journey so far my name is hannah ruth dyson founder of salty gathering and i'm so excited to embark on this journey together with you let's begin Hello and welcome to episode three, Planting Ourselves into a Deeper Ecology with Sophia Roklin. I really enjoyed listening to this episode, preparing to launch it here. Uh, It really surprised me actually how beautiful and deep that we traveled together. I'd forgotten. And uh, yeah, I'd I'd learned of Sophia just on another podcast right before, uh, not long before we recorded this episode. So um, I was relatively new to her work, but I dove right in. She's the co-author of When Plants Dream, Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance. And she has a lot of beautiful writing on her website, which we speak to in this episode that I also recommend you discovering for yourself. Uh, there's a lot of yeah beautiful insights, takeaways if you've been interested in plant medicine or in the world of anthropology or you know traveling to indigenous communities, you've been you know fascinated um, by that, then we kind of explore some of these topics uh, and give our sort of personal perspectives. And yeah, I really uh, look forward to hearing how you receive this episode. Please let us know. Please rate, subscribe, review, share with any friends and family. And yeah, enjoy. Oh, hi, Sophia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yay. <laughs> um, I'd love just to begin. I've been beginning each episode with this question of asking you about your own ancestry and anywhere you'd like to take that, anything you'd like to share. 
Hmm. Wow, great. Um, so it's like a, <clears throat> so, I mean, very technically, my mom is from France and my father is from Russia. So they met in New York City in the 1980s. Um, both of them left their countries and their pasts and past marriages and all these things um, and intentionally did not bring much of those memories with them into the future that was the United States or the American dream. Um, so I know very little about my ancestry, actually. Um, yeah, and it's been, it's been an interesting journey. I definitely, in many ways, grew up feeling very much like an orphan to the story of ancestry. Um, I'm an only child and, to, you know, daughter of immigrant parents in a big city in New York. So a lot of my path has been about finding what we are all ancestors of, which includes sponges and trees <laughs> and all these kind of relatives. But who knows, maybe I'll discover more along the way. I love that. And I love starting off with that question because it feels like a sort of, um, yeah, the roots of who we are and then how it branches out into what potentially we're attracted to or what we end up working with. And I do think for so many of us who have been drawn to like learning and, and working with indigenous people, it's it's reclaiming some parts of that of ourselves because we all of course come from those indigenous roots and those of us in Europe and and Asia and so on it can be a little bit further back that kind of really earth-based cultural connection but it's also such a beautiful um yeah just interesting place of placing us all and seeing how we all have moved through space and time and I love that you um really sort of own yourself as a bridge because I think that is what so many of us are called to at this time and I wanted to start off actually by reading something that you had written because it was so beautiful and you had such a you have such a beautiful way of words and there's this interesting I think reclamation that we're doing at this time which is I like I believe um understanding that we're not superior as a civilization or as you know quote-unquote modern people and there are you know other ways of learning which you speak of also in your writing which um, I would love to go into deeper but here it's um, I'm going to read something you wrote <laughs> it's funny to think that humans are somehow more sentient more feeling than other beings I believe other living things are far more sentient, their bodies, instincts, and senses taking score of change always as it comes. Plants, fungi, insects, and non-human animals feel the impact of winds moving in new directions, pesticides in earth, chemicals in water, and the sun shining stronger. Wings disintegrate, forgotten pollen turns to dust, mothers go missing, and some eggs never hatch. Trees fall and soil grows wary. They notice when something or someone in their food chain goes missing. 
Us, on the other hand, we carry on as if everything was just fine, blissfully disconnected from the delicate network of feeling and sense that is ecology. Ah, and I love that so much. It took I, me somewhere. <laughs> I really love that. And I just um, wanted to hear your journey to that. If that's, I think that's um, an appreciation, you know, you may have had as a child because ch children have that kind of wonder. But um, what it was coming from a sort of academic background, studying anthropology and uh, environmental economics and so on, and then coming into this more... Um, indigenous awareness again. Hmm. Wow. You know, I don't know why it just really touched me to hear you read that because it's me that said that, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, again, we like come, we wax and wane in and out of awareness and sensitivity to our environment. So to hear a past me, in a much more sensitive place, speaking to a present me who's maybe in a bit more of like a go, go, go mode right now. It's interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, often what I've observed is at least people who are my peers or my kin, many of them come from traditional academic tracks, which then eventually lead them to working together in partnership with indigenous communities, or maybe they go from academic to quote unquote spiritual, or they go from corporate to hippie, or like that, that seems to be the arc, that the, the popular arc. Um, and I actually went the other way. I was totally, I mean, I remember from, from very early on, my parents raised me atheist, like really raised me atheist. And yet I remember, setting up little shrines and just intuitively and instinctually creating little sacred spaces around me um, and infusing my world with magic simply because it was too lonely otherwise. It was bitterly lonely to imagine that there's nothing out there and to feel that there's nothing out there. Um, and whether or not you believe it's some supreme entity, some demiurge that's controlling the whole story, or it's just simply the other creatures that we live with. So a lot of my path to studying ecology and specifically traditional ecological knowledge is that it's it's very much like an animated ecology right it is a marriage of the very practical and the poetic and seeing friends and foes and characters in all of the beings with whom we share our common home so a lot of my pursuit as someone who is on a spiritual path and who is also committed to academic rigor and always, you know, salting things, <laughs> salting the dishes as they're served is, um, is, is, yeah, just being, hmm, I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you... Yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I resonate as well because I also had a very um, deep childhood like that, like very magical and very like believing in my own visions and imagination and just living in that way. And 
I don't think I ever fully lost it, but it definitely got chipped away as I also went into the academic tract and then back out. But I think I was already, by the time I got to university, I just the year before had traveled and had seen too much of the world to feel like the magic of the world also. And um, I'd also had this incredible opportunity to go to China and I had traveled through a lot of the Tibetan regions, which is mainly populated by still um, indigenous and Tibetan people. And then I came to university and I kind of swam around with a lot of different um, fields of study, but I, I remember taking anthropology of China, <laughs> the kind of um, the difficulty I had in particular with, with anthropology and that um, class, because I was the only non-anthropology major. And so I was the only one I would say not indoctrinated with the full language <laughs> and yeah. way of thinking. And I was like passionately arguing for what I had felt and experienced as a person with not only Han Chinese, like the main race of Chinese people, but really also these indigenous people. And um, I, I've, I've heard you also write about that a little bit, the sort of different ways of understanding knowledge and understanding people and also um, the conversation around being like sort of the sort of personal ethnography or the auto-ethnography mm -hmm. versus that like, we're going to study you as an outsider and make up all these perceptions. Um, I wonder mm -hmm, if you could speak mm -hmm. about your journey with that at all. Or yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's such a, such a, such an important topic. I think, yeah, as, as we both know, um, anthropology is a very fraught discipline. It has a lot of history of, I mean, it, it is fundamentally historically a colonialist tool, you know, measuring and accounting for the differences in different races. Um, but I mean, I, I remember when I was in undergraduate, you know, doing my undergraduate degree, I had an amazing teacher and mentor who always gave me C's and, you know, marked my papers with red ink all over. She really was very, very tough on me. Um, and at some point she recommended to me to check out this book by uh, this anthropologist named Ruth Bahar. And it's called, the book that she recommended is called The Vulnerable Observer Anthropology That Breaks Your Heart. And this just flipped the discipline on its head for me. This idea that you could be reading anthropology that breaks your heart. It was like, we're not, you know, we're not talking about the heart here. Certainly <laughs> this isn't what we are talking about, but it, it actually is. So, I mean, from there, I think my, what I hope to have been doing over the years is not so much study other people as different, but rather study myself as different amongst other people, you know? And that's really, I think, the only business one has <laughs> examining anything is, is yourself, you know? So in, as, a, as a younger woman in, in Ecuador and in, in the jungle and the, working with communities out there, rather than speaking about the history of people, which is, by the way, like who can possibly say what the history of a people is when it's, it's just a very complicated thing, you know, is really, really deeply observing myself in this environment um, and the ways that those differences push against me 
And they, the way that the differences push against my thoughts, the way that they push against my body, the color of my skin, how, you know, the way my butt looks, like just seeing, seriously, like seeing the way that people relate relationally, you know, how they relate to women, how they relate to a certain figure. Um, and in that process, there's like a mutual knowing that happens. Um, yeah. I love that. And yeah. I, it's, it's something I've been trying to exp- like really walk that line with, with this project because I wanted to do it with that academic rigor, with that kind of level of attention to detail and not fantasy and not like, you know, just creating something like this is what we actually know. And then at the same time, just trying to stay as pure and simple as possible. We're here to just share stories if they want to be shared, you know, and communicate, um, you know, different aspects that are being uh, communicated with us. And then also very much also like my own experience through that and that be the invitation for everyone to join this project to be their own researcher. And the Mm. more and more I've gone Mm -hmm. deeper into that, and Mm -hmm. just as Mm -hmm. you kind of mentioned with like the history, how can we ever know? It's actually, I think, the case for our whole global history that we've done such a limitation to by defining and putting so much bias and prejudice within our sort of historical knowledge perception. And this just looking into the female aspects or the women throughout time and and the archaeological record and the myths and the stories um, through that longer arc of time, I just constantly feel like, wow, there the name of this podcast, there is so much more to our story than what we've been mm. sort of uh, schooled with or what we're kind of shown all the time in in media or in, in sort of academic spaces. But mm-hmm. I, I love that. And I love just that um, also reminder to come to communities uh, and travel and just be a person, meeting another person. Yeah, totally. And just being in that space. Yeah. And, and um, yeah. That being said, I just, yeah, I would love to hear your journey mm. to the Amazon and what drew you there and also um, what you learned about yourself through the Sequoia and Shipibo communities mm. that you've mainly worked with. Wow, geez. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, being there has been my life for many, I mean, many, I'm young, but m- my adult life, yeah. I mean, I, I just to just to go back to what you said, yeah, like just being a human in these places, not posing as an anthropologist or program director, and that's this is basic, but it's I mean, we have all of these masks and these veils, and it's uh, it's extremely challenging to take them down, and they serve us, you know, our masks help us function and and fulfill our missions in some environments, but especially when we're talking about the matters in the mystical realms that, you know, the Amazon is certainly full of, like your, your facades will not hold up, especially in, in, in the, in the, you know, the dizzy heat of the medicine, like, you know, whoever you are, you're still sick and you're still lost in the forest with no headlamp and needing to go to the bathroom really badly and wondering how you got there, you know? Um, so, um, 
Can I circle back to your question? It was about, <laughs> like, <laughs> I just got yeah. lost in a memory. <laughs> yeah, just um, your journey there and oh, sure, like, yeah. learning with the Sequoia and the Shipipo. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like an odyssey, um, which is, you know, in some, there were glamorous moments and then there were extremely unglamorous <laughs> moments. Um, but I guess it began... <clears throat> Like the the simple beginning is that I I honestly just felt a call. Like looking back on it, and and I did I it I maybe it almost sounds cliche, but I remember the second that I I had a friend of mine who's an ethnobotanist named Jonathan Miller Weisberger. He wrote this amazing book called Rainforest Medicine, and his his commitment to supporting the demarcation of indigenous territories was always like, wow, like I met this person and I was just like, you, the dude is on it, you know? And I'd never met at the time. I'd never met somebody who was like that. Um, And so through him, through another person, kind of a, like a little chain thing, I got a connection to go to the Ecuadorian Amazon. And at the time I wasn't going like, you know, with my anthropologist hat on or anything like that. I was just going as a young woman. And honestly, it was a, looking back, I think it could have been very dangerous. Like there wasn't a retreat center. There was no connection. It was just like, you know, we'll pick you up at the airport when you get there kind of thing. And I had no idea where I was going to go, only that I was going to be there for like a month and a half the first time. So, um, I mean, and from from that point on, I've been traveling in and out of the Amazon for the past maybe six, seven, eight, well, eight years, um, working on different projects and supporting grassroots initiatives. But I think really like the the moment where things happened for me, like my my the, my beginning story. Um, was with a community called the Sequoia, the first people I visited. They call themselves the Sekopai. They're a small community of around, let's say, like 550 people. Um, you know, one of the many populations of the Amazon with rapidly dwindling headcount because of, you know, various factors. People leave the city, the the towns, the hamlets, or they... Unfortunately, these communities are like particularly devastated by extractivist activity, everything, I mean, particularly oil, um, oil extraction, but more lately, palm oil. So I had gone there on an adventure, you know, I had my backpack, I was going into the wild unknown. And of course, I had kind of fancied myself like, you know, going into a romantic Edenic voyage. And then when I got there, I just experienced and saw devastation, environmental devastation at a scale that broke me beyond repair. Like it just broke me, you know, it wasn't, I mean, living in cities and even in quaint suburbs and things, I think that these the, the the environmental destruction still remains abstract. You can kind of feel it at the edges. But when you drive through the Amazon for seven and a half, eight hours, seeing nothing but silent, charred landscapes or those monocultured 
very eerie plantations. It's like, I, I, I just, I could not recover from it for a long time. And I didn't have a community to integrate, like talk about psychedelic integrate. Let's talk about like environmental destruction integration. Like I just had, I didn't have the tools. I was hurting deeply, but that journey through the devastation and like desolate landscape led me to the Sequoia where they did have, you know, they held up their last little flags there working and singing and praying with the plants and doing their things. And it was in that moment where I had both my most profound experiences working with plant medicine and seeing the most profound environmental devastation that my path was just like woven together. And I, I, from then I could, I could never see the two as separate. You know, I said that in that moment, the real download was to just remember. That's like the word, remember, you know, remember the beauty, remember the toucans, remember the sunrise, remember the fruits and the plants and the songs and the, the, the art and the clothing and just support the memory of these people and these traditions and these languages because this is it life is if we're going to live the most beautiful expression of life i hope it's in the most colors available to us the most languages and the most visions and all of the diversity and our survival i i i think i believe as a as a species and as a you know, as a greater community of living creatures now depends not only on material conservation, but also intellectual and spiritual conservation. And I think that these realms, the, the intellectual and the spiritual conservation are often overlooked because we're still operating when it comes to activism in the material plane. And I think that as long as we stay in that one zone, we're not gonna fully heal the thing that's getting us in the issue in the first place. So this is why working very closely with indigenous peoples whose relationship to life is not unidimensional, but multifaceted is the way forward. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking mm. to that. It's um, it's huge. I mean, around eight years ago um, was when I had my full-on depression and sort of uh, breakdown, but it wasn't in person. I was working for a documentary company and I had to just watch documentary after documentary about the most devastating things going on in the planet. <laughs> Mm. And I lasted three months because I was crying every single day. Wow. And the day yeah. I quit was the day I was told, you need to figure out a way to stop crying because you're making a scene in the office. And I was like, oh, I have to leave because I was just, um, yeah, I'd just been transcribing something particularly mm. hard in that moment. Yeah. And it was that moment of complete loss and breakdown and disconnect and hopelessness that I traveled really um, in that away from like this idealistic childlike um, thing that I'd always had of like, I have to save the world. <laughs> What's going on since a very young child? Um, I suddenly had this, okay, but what is going on within me? And then I went mm -hmm. on to that spiritual journey. But like you said, mm -hmm. 
it was kind of um, linked at that point also. I could never mm-hmm. go fully on my spiritual journey and forget or fully disconnect from that. And it's something as I've come deeper into this work, I've also, it, it's been it, it something that kind of... Um, like enlivens me, triggers me, or it can cause that like energy of, wow, like the way so many people I think have been talking about indigenous for so long in the modern world is as if they are dying. And Mm -hmm. that is just inevitable Mm -hmm. because the modern world is the supreme evolution of where we came from. And those of us who've been humbled <laughs> by mm-hmm. medicines or just experiences with these people, like I, I also had, um, I just had spent a year researching the the Kogi people in Colombia in preparation to go meet with them, and I still remember the first day I arrived <laughs> in sitting down with this female elder, Hava Teresa, and I immediately like knew in my heart of hearts, like. I knew nothing. I had respect. <laughs> yeah. And my yes. job was to yeah. stay yeah. silent and listening and observing and learning. Yeah, the whole entire time. Um, totally. Yeah. And so I would love, I mean, there's so many different yeah. directions to speak to with all of that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, getting schooled by traditional peoples is one of them for sure. Like, happens over and over and just getting humbled and sitting down and being quiet and and something that's also hard teaching for us we're not trained to do that exactly and it goes against everything we've been trained to do and something that has been spoken about in the academic field is this kind of like romanticization of indigenous people which i understand it's not like they are the saviors or they are perfect or they are better than necessarily it's more like they are people worthy of meeting with and learning with just as you know anyone else in any other field could be but like there's so much more um than the I think the very narrow focus we've created in our modern world design and exactly as you spoke with activism this is also the rally cry and call for those of us who've been touched by these people it's like wake up these are already leaders of the movements we're looking for you know these are already solutions these are already um yeah so much going on and uh yeah i'd love to just hear just because this has been your your journey from the very beginning and i think something you're so passionate about with your writing and um education is like matching this huge phenomenon of plant medicine and ayahuasca as like a a huge like excitement for people or just curiosity or wow I'm gonna go and have this experience and connecting that with okay what are you also gonna do with that experience and Mm -hmm, I just mm -hmm. wanna um yeah I just want to (laughs) quote you quoted uh you quoted your (laughs) co-author in your in your blog piece from your book when plants dream Daniel Pitchbeck Uh And he puts it as personal initiation leads to global transformation. Mm -hmm. And you say, I am deeply aligned with this vision. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to explore that. Mm -hmm. That's a great question or subject. Yeah. And you touched on it earlier, you know, this path in 
the way out is through the way out is in you know <laughs> like the way up is down all these things um i mean it's interesting i guess like looking at let's for a moment put our anthropologist hats on and look at the role of initiation just let's say very broadly, we're going to like paint with a very big brush, you know, like we see initiation and ritual as something that is very strategically architected into different social communities for very specific purposes. Um, sometimes they're simply to just punctuate the end of one phase of life and graduate into the next. Sometimes it's to open one door and close another Sometimes it's to initiate the living into the realm of the dead. I mean, you know, they're, they, they mark passages, essentially. And what we find in our culture is none of that. All of those punctuation marks have been eroded into one very, very long run-on sentence, let's say. Um, and without this opportunity or this structure to really pause and transform time and space to transcend time space um we we are not looking at ourselves we're not we're not introspecting we're not evaluating we're not debriefing you know it's like running a whole project without meeting with your colleagues and just checking in and seeing how things are doing um and so that's i think very generally like one of the purposes that initiation and ritual like fulfills. Um, having said that, you know, plant medicine for many people is their first introduction to initiation and to ritual. Very basically, you get this experience of a near-death experience, often a feeling of total loss of control, a feeling of being shepherded from one realm to another realm. This liminal space between I don't know where my hands and my feet and my body and my past and my future and everything blends together in this night or morning or you know the course of the the ceremony itself um and that's very cathartic and very powerful for many people so in one way you know wow what a blessing that plant medicine has really provided a means for people to get into that place um, which in other contexts we don't really have anymore, you know? Um, so that's, that's the beauty, you know, when I think of I me mean, often when we talk about, especially like I kind of often, you've probably read my work about almost like laughing at the, the material realm of psychedelics, like how people get super like the industry and how it's getting monetized and all these different things. I mean, it is what it is, but Often when we talk about, let's say, for example, ayahuasca, people want to talk about the molecules. They want to talk about the chemicals. They want to go in, 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 in. Um, and yet I think we're really missing the point if we're only taking this reductionist material approach. Um, and perhaps it you know, behooves us to actually be building outwards, right? Like looking at 
the the hands that cultivate the plants and the bugs that pollinate the plants and what those bugs are up to and what songs the humans sing to those bugs and at what time of year and just like beginning to stitch together the ecology and approaching the way that we study these things. We understand these things from a totally different vantage point, which is equally relevant and equally important, but it's a perspective that we have lost. Um, and this is why in some ways, I think so many Western people are very hungry to go to ceremonies because if you're lucky, you know, if you do your due diligence, you'll be um, guided by somebody who does understand this way of seeing and communicating and studying the world. And this is the kind of epistemology or method of knowledge production that is extremely liberating and not only liberating, but like inclusive, right? It considers all of the other people, like the plant people, the rock people, the, the mineral people, all of the mountain people, all of the people that conspired to like make a thing happen. So to circle back, like instead of just talking about ayahuasca as the brew, right? As it does in Hollywood Reporter, New York Times, New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. Like perhaps consider the bigger story, the, the cosmogony, the, the, the agricultural techniques, the songs people sing, all of these things that are ineffable and unfortunately for some are unquantifiable, they're immeasurable, they're ineffable, right? Like it's difficult to speak about them. But we're a speaking people. We love speaking. We love We love like really getting our hands around it and strangling it, you know. So it requires a letting go, and that's really hard. But we must let go to let something new come into our lives. Sometimes. Yes, I love this so much, and just so beautiful. Just the way you um, you guide us into that deeper web of ecology and that bigger picture because that is I think that deeper thing we are looking for like you say also like that the reason we're so attracted to the ceremony but then perhaps if you're so shut down in even knowing what you're looking for you think you're going for this particular experience and you can miss what else is going on and this is what I've, you know, we've just had two gatherings where we've been able to bring women together to, to sit with indigenous women without any plant medicine um, other than cacao and, um, but no like psychedelic experience. But I think when women really, when the participants have really dropped in, they go on a psychedelic experience because <laughs> your whole, um, and I can speak for myself, I feel like I'm constantly living a psychedelic <laughs> experience, but you go through a complete, um, like I can say again with Habatreza in Colombia, who really transformed my life because just sitting with her, I would realize like any question that would arise in my mind would either, like the answer would just show up or mm -hmm. would be answered in some way like it was just like there mm -hmm, was no mm -hmm. need for 
that pencil and notebook. And I realized it was only after that experience I realized I needed to prepare people better to um, understand their expectations for arriving to those kind of experiences because um, several of the women were really um, caught up with at the end, like, but we didn't get the presentation. We didn't get the you know, the like the museum exhibit. The, and it was very strange, actually, directly after the, the gathering, I went to um, Santa Marta, the main town, and there's a museum where they had a display of the Kogi people. <laughs> and again, it's just so funny how we <laughs> expect knowledge and how we feel like we're actually getting something for totally. our money and, 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 totally. and what that sort of disorientation, like a plant medicine, I'm grateful for the plant medicine to provide that very strong enforced kind of experience into that. Like you can't escape the kind of um, reshuffling of your whole mind and system. But if we could walk through life with that, yeah, it's like part of the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. It's totally that. And you said something earlier, um, about like sitting in ceremony and looking for the point or I don't know exactly you said something along those lines and I'm just thinking like in some ways you know like what I've found in supporting facilitating ceremonies and these things is sometimes it's like you may not even be looking for the answer to the thing but a new way to find the answer or, in, or a way to let go of finding the answer, right? Like, it's, but it's totally true. I mean, a friend of mine once said, unexpect the expected, like you just gotta, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you just gotta improvise and be adaptable. Mm-hmm. Being adaptable is, is the way, is and the how, way of the plants. How liberating also for this time for this shakeup of the world and a lot of people waking up, you know, finally Mm -hmm. to a lot of things, I think, that have been Mm -hmm. going on for some time. But we need that. um, I think that's exactly what we're looking at in terms of activism and change and the, the stuff that we're trying to solve in the world is could we bring that medicine of looking at it differently and surrendering mm-hmm. our and trying to solve I, I think you wrote something about this as well like trying to solve the problem with the same um mm. with a solution you know the same way I think yeah. you, you wrote about yeah, it much the same more level of consciousness yeah. yeah yeah absolutely like you know I recently I've, I was I forget I wish I remembered what book it was it was studying the evolution of plants through like a Western perspective, you know, and then also looking at it from the the dieta perspective, like the studying and, and being in isolation and fasting and taking small quantities of plants and just like deeply, deeply observing and interacting with plants and having plants deeply observe and interact with you, <laughs> vice versa. And I think, I mean, and perhaps I'm wrong, but going back to this question of like adaptability, you know, adapting to our environments, like in a way I feel like we've, there's a great experiment happening 
on this planet. There's the animal experience and there's the plant experience. And of course there are other experiences, but let's just say those are like the heavy hitters that we see anyway. Perhaps they're like spirits and things that we're not aware of. But in any case, like animals of all kinds, including us, have adapted, have successfully adapted because we move right? We have legs that help us run away from things, or we climb up mountains, or we, our, our, our MO when we see adversity is to just walk away, basically, or to like physically get into it. Whereas a plant, when they have some sort of a, you know, a chemical reaction, or the temperature is changing, or their circumstances are unfolding unfavorably for them, they like, have a whole host of different sensitive options that they feel. And there are these living laboratories and they may disperse seeds or they may send nutrients through their root systems or they may kill some leaves off to consolidate energy. And so I think of like the plant experiment and the human or the animal experiment is these parallel kind of tracks and we're seeing like one moves faster obviously but one is playing the longer game you know and it one it's to, yet to be determined if the experience the animal experience is just like a we're just creating a bunch of compost for a plant kingdom that will come in a million years and they won't even remember us it's hard to say you know but so I think about that, like how can, what can we learn from how plants learn, right? And this is, I mean, I'm not gonna get into the whole like debate about it, but it's a pretty loaded question to say like, can plants learn, right? Because then you start to imply that there's some sort of an intelligence or agency and all of that kind of stuff. But ultimately the question of adapt adaptability is a question of, learning right yeah. i think it's so, a redefinition yeah. of intelligence and knowledge exactly right? yeah which we who i mean we really have to <laughs> we gotta revisit that one for ourselves you know for sure I, totally and this goes back to like which knowledge is privileged over others which knowledge is prioritized over others and we see that the people who live in very close concert and partnership with the plants and the animals and the rivers, the people who are, let's say, indigenous, if you go by the definition that there are people who have been deeply, deeply connected to a particular ecosystem whose language and cosmovision has been informed and formed by those elements, like they are those, they're a composite of those earth things. Um, we see that that knowledge is extremely precious. Absolutely. I, I mean, I feel for us to survive as a species, we really do need to be guided back into that deep ancestral indigenous way of knowledge because to place yourself within an ecosystem and a one part of it where to survive every day and to just live well, um, to really flourish is to deeply understand who you're in relationship with. 
And again, all of that starts to make so much <laughs> intuitive, but also just intellectual sense. It's like, of course, we need to, because we see when we plant our straight roads and cities and try and contain everything that's wild and try and force everything into cages or, you know, it, mm -hmm. in the end, it creates um, massive dysfunction, huge levels of depression huge levels of stress huge levels of disconnect we are walking through the world wildfires so yeah so much so much and um how to yeah i i don't believe everyone's path is to go and drink ayahuasca in the jungle to no me neither um, <laughs> to to get back to that but um those, this kind of conversation, I think, is just one little part of it where let's just try and speak of it more and more as valuable and not just valuable, but as necessary for our survival mm -hmm. and evolution in the truest sense where we can adapt and, and survive <laughs> within yeah. the greater world that we're here. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and it's not like adapt like survival of the fittest as in you know, which conjures an image of like you know beating each other over the head with sticks kind of things but like adapt the fittest shall adapt you know like how do we adapt and I mean this I totally agree with you like I don't what you know I, I really don't think everybody should be going and I don't think anybody should be doing anything for the record, but I mean, especially with plant medicine, there's a bit of like an evangelist like tone that happens. And I would love on the record to say, like, I don't think everybody should go and, you know, fly across the world. And in some ways, this is like a great paradox that I was living with as a person and um, an inconsistency or maybe even like a honestly, probably a hypocrisy that I was living with, which was like, yeah, like I, you know, call myself an environmentalist or an activist or whatever you want to say, but I fly to the forest. And so I'm, I'm one of the few people on earth who feels very blessed by lockdown and quarantine because it really put a wrench in my, in my cogs and kind of forced me to deeply reconsider, am I really walking the talk. And in some ways I found that I wasn't, you know, I don't know if it rings true for you at all too. I think for many of us, like, whoa, just taking a really deep look at it, a really long, hard look at it in this ceremony of coronavirus. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I mean, I feel um, <laughs> we have to always live a little bit with the contradiction and hypocrisy of ourselves I think it's deeply humbling to me mm -hmm. there's no way to really be deeply connected to what needs to change and what needs to happen without having to just be constantly humbled be mm -hmm. by being human and by living in this world and and also yeah I agree I've been um I, I always felt like this need to see the entire world as a child I was like I just mm. want to see everything <laughs> and meet yeah. every different type of culture and just learn about as much as we can learn here but through this project I've also been thinking about a lot about you know that concept inviting people to be the researcher and just reaching out to invite people to share the knowledge through the platform where we we can live it through their eyes and ears and we can travel through 
the actual people of the land who caretake the land, but not necessarily either leaving our house, but just really um, expanding our vision of what we're told, because I see such limitations within our current media output and what we see and we what we see is what we believe and it's mm-hmm. not until mm-hmm. the greatest parts of traveling and actually going there like I, I know you experience going to the Amazon and beginning your work with the Sequoia and then the Shipipo is like um, this humbling and just wow like everything I thought I knew is different again and there's just expansion to that and I think even the travel industry and even the more hippie mm-hmm. travel industry, I would still mm-hmm. see how people stay within their comfort of hostel to hostel or retreat center or, right. you know, and, and at the same time, it's not our right to show up in every indigenous community and say, I want the real experience. You know, I want to be with the real people. <laughs> you know, I which mean, I, how many times, yeah, yeah. it's, it's like, I can't tell you how many times people have sent me messages or emails being like, hey, I want the real experience. I want the authentic experience, uh, you know, and you're pointing right to it. It's like, good, me too. <laughs> like, at what point exactly was it real or authentic, you know? I mean, because it, 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 it all is, it all is, you know, it's about intention, but People adapt, people change, people's songs change, people's brews change, people's clothes change. It's, yeah. Just interrupting this beautiful episode to share with you that we close our doors to the Deep Feminine Soul Journey on February 27th and we will not open the doors again until summer. So if you've been thinking about joining or you want to learn more, you can visit soulseagathering.com forward slash house. And we are preparing for our first rite of passage coming up on this equinox. If you're in the northern hemisphere, that's the spring equinox. If you're in the southern hemisphere, that is the autumn equinox. And we're moving um, through this stage of beginning. We're really uh, exploring what we want to leave behind in the world itself and within ourselves and how we can take part in really redesigning and shaping this better future that we wish to be a part of. Um, As always with this work, we're exploring the deep history and we're crossing time and space to really reclaim the parts that um, can really nourish us and support us for this journey ahead. We're also learning from many indigenous elders, women that have supported this project so far and women that we're still yet to meet that we're excited uh, to learn from this year. So uh, if you've been calling out for community, we invite you here. Uh, Again, that's www.saucygathering.com forward slash house. Let's get back to the episode. I love that as well, because it's also that reminder through what you just said that indigenous people are not stuck in time. They've Mm -hmm. also been evolving constantly. Totally. And um, again, we think we have such a grasp of our history because we have this written record and we have, you know, these certain things. But I think there's also so many limitations to that, how we've framed everything. So Mm -hmm. through these stories that get passed on, through the songs and just through the memories and through the rituals and the ceremonies and the, it's that through line that, um, really connects us to something deeper and I think that is it is one of the greatest privileges if you do get to experience that through 
these keepers of knowledge and through these um yeah indigenous elders or um yeah people who are have been carrying forth this knowledge but I do believe we can all tap into that also coming back to the first question because it's like there are when I began just exploring more and more my own ancestry I it's like these little clues and then deepening and just going through and and just staying open and curious to um there being more from the lands that my ancestors came from and then uh it's amazing also how pieces of wisdom or knowledge also show up in that journey of just being open to learning more mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. totally totally i was you know i was just thinking about what you said about um like our western history because we have an account written of it i mean obviously it goes without saying like history is written by the victors <laughs> And it's certainly a very centralized system of accounting that we've done. You know, historically, white men were the ones writing the record of the world, as it were. Um, And I just remembered also you'd said, you know, pointing to like this idea, this Western, common Western misconception that like Indigenous people are frozen in the past or something. Um, there's, a, there's an artist named Sara Varela. She's a Shipiba woman. And she makes these amazing, uh, I guess they're like prints that are the traditional kana, you know, the kind of classic Shipibo designs. And within them, she's embedded these kana QR codes. So you could scan your phone over them and they'll lead you to like a Wikipedia page or something like that. And I thought that was so cool. That was such a neat representation of her, you know, like of her culture adapting and evolving um, and tapping into like the interweb of knowledge, you know, (laughs) Um, rather than like the botanical and the botanical web. And then I also thought about um, some, something that my, I, when I was in, living in the in Ukayali in the in the region that the Shipibo people are traditionally from. Um, I was learning a little bit of the Shipibo language from this man named Eli Sanchez. He's like an amazing teacher. And at some point he was explaining to myself and the other people in the class that the Shipibo used to have seven past tenses, seven ways of explaining how things happened in the past. Like, I don't even know. I'm not sure how many tenses we have. Probably there's like, the, like you know, we have been or we were, you know, we had been. Um, but just that idea that like people, you know, these different streams of knowledge and it just blows my, it just blows my, I'm just, it leaves me speechless, actually. This idea that people through oral histories developed such a refined technology through language of locating experience temporally through seven tenses. And that's what this one person told me. Maybe there were 14 at some point and now that's lost, you know, but just imagine that, like imagine. And then I wonder if you're speaking with seven tenses in the past, like how do you perceive of the present and the future? You know, like these are the things like worth, these are the thing, this is the mountain I will die on in life. Like this is, this is it, you know, these little bits of knowledge and perception that just totally rattle the homogeneity or the, the, 
the linear format of life. Like, this is wow. this is the kind of thing I live for. Just like a, a piece of yeah. knowledge that then just like goes. I want to then go into so many yeah. different directions, and yeah, that's yeah. why the importance of language is. It's like their keys into a different way of thinking. And I mean, I even see it from English to Spanish or English to German, or you know, I you start to embody a kind of different energy. But these languages are kind of similar in the grand scheme of things. When you look to indigenous language, and again, it's all interconnected with the environment and the place. It kind of often the languages truly only make sense within the set and setting. And this is also mm. such a yeah. importance for us to to treasure and understand the value mm-hmm. of yeah 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 language makes the world you know there's an amazing nonprofit organization i'll do a shout out called the endangered language alliance um and you know yeah they they do cool projects but just seeing and supporting different organizations throughout the world that are like working on preserving traditional languages is like i find it to be a very noble noble task noble yeah. pursuit and quest yeah and we've um, we chatted previously a little bit about um just the i guess the female side which the shipibo community they have all these female healers and um, Mm -hmm. guides with the medicine and it's become I would say as an industry as a whole um, quite male-led in terms of Mm. even when you hear of the word shaman which is also (laughs) you know from Siberia not necessarily representing healers across the world (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. but what is there any sort of um I guess the question is just what have you observed just being perhaps differences with that and um, what are the women who carry that medicine? Um, yeah, anyway you want to go with it, but just just talking about it because I think it's um, so beautiful to, to just see um, these different ways also the fact that ayahuasca is um, itself shared between many different tribes who also share it in very different ways and likely at this point very differently to how it's shared within most retreat centers or for Mm, tourists mm -hmm. themselves Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. yeah anywhere you want to go with that yeah it's a great it's a great point i mean Maybe I'll like reverse engineer it. I'm just thinking it's a conversation that I've had with some people who work in um, psychedelic medicine in a clinical setting, you know, like Johns Hopkins and all of these, all of these university centers that are now opening up research related to psychedelic science. It's, you know, there's, there are women who work in these clinical settings and historically their participation um and their contributions have been, you know, extremely undervalued. And they are maybe not the leading investigator on, or the principal researcher on the team, but they're actually the person holding the person's hand or getting them a glass of water or calming them down or w- walking them through if things get difficult. And so this is like the question of care and tenderness and the unquantifiable um, and yet completely 
necessary and integral aspects of healing that have been completely removed from our healthcare system in the West, or they're very effectively, you know, trying to eliminate the tenderness and the humanity of that. Um, and traditionally, this has been relegated to the realm of women, right, as caretakers. So just let's say sticking with like the, the gendered work allocation here, like, yeah, women's work is overlooked in, in all fields and it's underpaid. And, and yet now with feminist economists and with different uh, feminist economics and different things, we're seeing like that this, on this, this work of care is so vital and so important. And even if you ask participants who participated in clinical trials, they'll say like the, the work, the tenderness that I felt from the, from the women around me was indispensable. That's the word they use, indispensable. So from that angle, then kind of looking at the unique um, instance, I guess, of Shipibo medicine, where for kind of impossible to ex fully explain reasons, um, Shipibo people have seemed to have maintained um, female practitioners very strongly in their practice, unlike many other communities throughout the Amazon basin who, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say just it's the influence of, you know, Christianity and, and patriarchal, patriarchal forces from, from, you know, Europe. Um, but that's also perhaps a myth too, you know, sometimes again, without falling into the pit of romanticizing things, we could say, oh yeah, you know, there were an equal civilization before 500 years ago, but really like who's, who's to say ultimately, but for whatever reason, we do see that Shipibo people have a lot of female healers, um, Onanya. So that seems to be really important or indispensable to some people coming from abroad or really anywhere and working there's something about that energy of care and that tenderness of the of the 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 a woman's touch that is just like extremely nurturing and healing so i feel extremely grateful to have worked with shipiba maestras and um at the temple of the way of light which is where i've primarily worked in peru and then you know more more broadly throughout that region and i really celebrate their wisdom and their teachings and their unique medicine. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for speaking to it and, and, and also taking it to the, you know, quote unquote, modern context of that reminder. And I think that is what I'm excited by the conversations around the like caring economics or that sort of more feminine based, um, uh, value system like how can we value that within men also you know within all genders just that um that valuing and appreciation for these aspects that are actually vital for <laughs> you know the future generations I could speak also as a pregnant um mother that uh it's like I'm grateful right now just to take it to the personal um to be working with a birth sort of she calls herself more of a birth coach or keeper like um really kind of getting you to understand the responsibility of birthing the future and how are we creating the environment for mothers to be looked after and feel held and supported so that they can make the babies coming through 
feel that. And it's such a deep, it's so beautiful. So I'm preparing right now in a really deep way to take 42 days when I give birth to just be in 100% rest with a new child and have everything in life. And of course, we can call that a privilege and a luxury, which it is, but it's also when we look to um, many intact indigenous communities around the world, it is what is honored and held. It is your fundamental understanding of to create healthy, strong, um, you know, empowered individuals who can also lead the tribe and do many other things later on that initial um, transition into the world is really vital. And it's it's beautiful to just um, weave that into my own life and, you know, just find ways to make that happen. But uh, I see that in terms of the reclamation of the feminine is super deep. And and as you said, it's it's something I've had to walk very carefully with with this project is to not romanticize and say oh, at, at one point we were all um there's my there's there is a lot of evidence that we had a, a huge stretch of time through for example the paleolithic time in in europe where there's no uh, evidence of war it's clear that there was egalitarian sort of ways of life and very peaceful living and then of course we've had many other bit, like aspects of history so i think it's never been one way or the other it's always been shape-shifting and again this is why i love the name of this podcast there is more to our story because it's like just expanding our minds to the this this uh, other ways of being it's not just I, I grew up with history just believing it's always been male dominated right and it's always been we're just learning feminism and equality today and then through indigenous tribes and also in, in cases where on the surface it can seem still masculine led or it can still seem like that there is still a deeper appreciation often of the feminine um, even through the men and also just within the society as a whole, even the fact that women can still be the keepers of the home and the hearth and the food and the children, but they are deeply honored and respected for that role, which is, again, a huge thing. But um, it makes sense for me, like the uh, you'd want in a medicine experience, a journey uh, shepherded through that initiation a feminine motherly like figure like that care is like wow <laughs> I'm being held and um these little pieces of evidence of legends um or stories or um other ways of being I think are just not to say oh yeah it used to always be egalitarian or women and men were in these roles but there there was something else there or at least the story is sharing a message and and you mentioned um in a previous conversation we've had a legend and i wonder if you could speak to that at all of um <laughs> putting you on the spot I'm trying to remember <laughs> um was it about was it well maybe maybe i'll skirt around it and just spiral into the center of it or you can you can push me in the direction but i mean yeah again it's like you know this is a very exciting and even hot topic amongst like archaeologists and anthropologists who want to know like were there female healers in the past before 
the arrival of colonialists in the Amazon. And um, in some cases, like for the Yawanawa, there very recently has been, you know, a woman who's the first of her lineage to be a leader, which is, I understand to be like a reclamation of a past. Um, and then, I mean, otherwise, you know, I don't, <laughs> maybe you can push me, put, point me in the right direction, but I don't know really of many convincing or compelling stories that would suggest that there were many people who were, you know, both female and male healers in the regions in the common ways that we think of it. Um, but I guess there's something, yeah. No, I think you'd, I think you'd recent, you'd touched on quite a patriarchal tribe or quite a, you know, seemingly macho tribe. There's still being this little clue that maybe there was something with the feminine. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, it was, I remember it was, I think it must've been with the Sequoia and I had heard, yeah, that there was one woman named, I had met her a few times. Her name was Matilde, and she was this, like, unbelievably special, extremely frail woman. We don't know how old she was. She was definitely in her hundreds. And she had, and I, I wrote a piece about her. It was, like, one of the first creative writing pieces I did on the subject. And I, I thought about all of the changes that she'd lived through in her hundred years of life. Um, living in the Amazon, you know, going from Jesuit missionaries to, I mean, well, yeah, I think there probably were Jesuit missionaries and the, her first light bulbs, her first cars, her first candy bars. And she, her mother was a healer that we do know. Um, And she knows these healing songs, but then towards the end of her life, she became a devout Christian. So she's, she'd lived like, the whole (laughs) the whole thing you know um I'm so glad you mentioned her because I I I read your piece about her and I remember wanting to just speak her because I I it's just something through an image and a name and just something about it's like wow just honoring their spirit in the Mm -hmm. conversation because Mm -hmm. yeah I felt something through that She's, yeah, I really like, I, I, you know, sometimes you just meet people and you're like, God bless, like you, you did it. She really, she really did it. She's a very special soul. I'm really grateful to have been with her and seen just the little that I did of her experience on earth is just like profound, you know, just to ha- not only have lived through industrialization, but like in the Amazon, you know. Wow. Um, I think another interesting to kind of like go to the feminine aspect again, like an interesting angle to look at how, let's say like the role of women or the understanding of women is through um, menstruation taboos, taboos around fertility and menstruation and all these different things. And I mean, it's probably, I don't have like a conclusive answer on it or anything, but in some communities you do see that there's a, 
explicitly, um, you know, it goes even beyond taboo. It's like there's a phobia around menstruating women. And I've been in a situation where I was like, you know, kind of locked in a hut for my five days because, and, you know, instructed not to shower or to look at anybody or these kinds of things, um, which in my, you know, highly, uh, <laughs> like, let's say highly educated and feminist perspective, like it's extremely offensive because blah, 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 right? Like I will have like my, all of my ideas and my uh, things about it. But then when I like get off my high horse for a second, I see like, oh yeah, these taboos actually served a very specific function. You know, they're not just pulled out of the air. And if you think about it, for example, like, many of these, well, actually, yeah, like at, at some point, all of these indigenous communities were to a certain extent, to varying degrees, hunters and gatherers. So they became extremely attuned to the sensitivities of their environments. And if you're going out on hunting expeditions, you need to be super keen and aware of how you smell. So being in bed, laying in bed, being at all close to a menstruating woman is a dead giveaway that there's a human in the forest. And men who were hunters would go on specific diets, they would eat specific foods, they would fast, they would do all of these things to mask their scent. So to go back to the senses and the dulling of our senses and our relationship to things, I can imagine a time and a place where people, especially forest people, or even I guess all of us at a certain point had hyper-expanded senses, you know, our ability to see, our ability to smell. Obviously, we're not going to smell as well as dogs, but perhaps we were even close at some point. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Physiologically, probably not, but you get this, you get the idea, you know. So to circle back, it's like while some of these taboos and fears and gender differences may seem kind of like maybe antiquated or dumb or backwards or whatever from our upbringing and our perspective, oftentimes I found they actually make a lot of sense within the working internal logic of the way things work in the forest. So this is all to say like reserve judgment, just observe, you know, no people have figured things out for a particular reason. It's the same thing with bur like controlled burning in California, right? Like I'm sure people, early ecologists in California thought, wow, what a crazy thing to do to burn forests on purpose. You know, these people are, let's say savages or whatever. And like, mm, you know, a couple hundred years later, see, there's a very specific logic to that controlled destruction. So. I love that. And I, it's again how how to walk through the world just open and curious and uh ready to receive different ways of knowledge and and seeing and walking and so forth rather than yeah all of our preconceived judgments and expectations and I mean even as you spoke about the deep phobia I mean I just thought of our society I feel of course within spirituality and divine feminine movements and feminism there's this like you know reclamation of you know ritual around bleeding and putting your blood in the earth which also has you know indigenous roots and ancestral roots in other um, lineages but um, 
still, I would say, majority of the modern world has a lot of phobia around it. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You flush it down the toilet. You know, you don't want to look at it. You don't want to talk about it necessarily. I don't know. I had all these negative preconceptions around it like it's a curse for women it's a burden <laughs> rather than also a deeper level of love and respect and just acknowledging wow like I know I can't remember the name of the tribe but I was um I do have a had a like a, a link to a recording of a Venezuelan indigenous elder talking about well I mean within their tribe it's one of the most sacred important times for women to receive the knowledge for the community. And so that has a different level of history and tradition rooted in and uh, all of it. I just love um, gaining more more and more expansion. And I, I love how you say, like giving that understanding of survival and why things have become ritualized or become embedded into the tapestry. It, Again, it can make a lot more sense than first meets the eye. And I want to give you the platform just to speak in any sort of... We, there's so many other threads I would love to go on and I'll have to have you back in the future sometime just to go on other deep dives because there's so much um, so much to speak to. But I, I mean, one thing I wanted to speak to was the the Aini, the the reciprocity, embedding this back into the our cultural knowledge, perhaps with I I as soon as I heard you speaking about that, I was like, yes, because this is something that's lacking a little bit in the industry um, of of ceremony and going for these initiations is perhaps that immediate sense of what am I giving back beyond money and beyond, you know, just um being there but like what what is what is this serving as a greater purpose mm. or web of life I would love to hear mm -hmm. just yeah anything you would like to yeah I mean when I think about it it's like you know going back to being in the forest that first time and seeing like you know when I was faced looking at that environmental destruction I was thinking like, oh yeah, I can go drink medicine and thinking about my personal problems. But as long as there's oil being pulled out of the earth and as long as those fields are getting torn apart and as long as the jaguars are separated from their mothers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, my healing's not going to get that far. It will get somewhere, but it will not get there. And... Um, my sense is that this is kind of where, as you called it, like the industry, let's say the emerging psychedelic industry is missing the mark, is um, it ends with the individual when it must begin with the individual and expand outwards like rings on a tree, kind of, right? Like, yeah, I guess that works. Like, you know, we are embedded in a greater ecology of things. And when people are on their deathbeds or when people are freaking out in ceremonies, the thing that they care about are relationships with people and the relationality. 
their relationships with their dogs, their relationships with their parents, their relationships with their ancestors, their relationships with their landlords, like all of these threads of communication with the world around us. And now imagine when you start getting more connected, you think about the relation to the tomato vine and the chickens that you care for and maybe the Amazon, right? Like the, we're, we live in these concentric circles. So that's my sense, you know, and my sense is my, my hypothesis seems to be kind of confirmed by, let's say the, the Shipibo talk about this concept of akinananti, which means reciprocity and working together, um, which is like similar to the, the Quechua word for aini, which is like a, it's a, it's a broader philosophy, but it's this kind of bedrock concept, meaning, yeah, like unity, working together, interconnectedness. Um, so let's say, and again, this is my interpretation of Shipibo medical worldview, um, not claiming it to be perfectly accurate, but I think there are different categories of illness and affliction. And all of these things are perceived not so much as very, you know, biological imbalances in the brain, but more relational things like you walked under a cursed tree or you drank river from water from a poisoned river or um, somebody looked at you a funny way. <laughs> like these are truly some, some of the, the things that people say. And first you go to a Western doctor, you crazy. They're going to look at you like, what, <laughs> you know, but in a way, if somebody gives me a really, if somebody gives me a really bad look in the office space, I'm going to start getting a knot in my stomach. And that knot in my stomach is going to make me not eat well and is going to not make me sleep well. And it's going to make me sick. Like it's a very, very basic stuff. So that's not to say that things don't happen. Cancers don't grow. Like I think that both of these realities can exist simultaneously. Um, so, you know, following along that thread, it's like working illness is not just about what's happening inside it's what's happening about outside and likewise healing is not just what's happening inside it's what's going on outside so that's kind of the call to action you know it's kind of saying great like heal yourself like take care of yourself you are the universe like go for it you know you are the universe and the universe is calling upon you too. So my hope in any case is that we don't get lost in navel gazing and get too concerned with the personal dramas and stories and things, you know, respect your past, respect your pain, respect your healing work because that's needed in order to sustain long-term action, but see how it relates outside too, you know? And it's a thing with like, it was just having a conversation with some people the other day about donor grantee relationships. And, you know, if you work in, in activist fundraising and sometimes like there's this a bit of a relationship, like uh, some, some activists feel like they live in poverty, right? Like they're, they're needing to ask, they're, they're calling, calling from beneath the money tree, like, please give me something, you know? But they don't necessarily see that like the money tree also is like activated and loves 
to give. Like the greatest gift that that tree can give is to give. And so that's kind of the call. It's like it's it's about it's about when we have abundance, like to give. You know, to to not 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 be. It's just about letting it like flow in in all things. I love that you brought it to that because it's so it's a, it's been a recent um click or like reframe in my own mind of how <laughs> like for so long like how to bridge these worlds of I mean first academia and spirituality and you know all the all the different bridges that we're we're working with but then also that that money and that sort of activist space and I recently came through with me it was like it's um what place do we what value do we place on the feminine and on the earth and what is that exchange and reframing it in that way rather than money is evil or toxic or the problem it's more like how to um clean the money system within our own minds for it to hopefully ripple out again into that collective field of what are we doing with storehousing masses of wealth with no and dying with it like what is the purpose of that like um and and bringing it back to health which i think can be very much interconnected to how we see wealth <laughs> it's um again i think many traditional uh, indigenous healers it's the whole framework of the environment and what are you part of and when you say like yeah we're healing internally to then bring that out it's also the other way I mean it's both ways right it's in and out and again if we can dance with that in the world I think we're going to be able to shift things in a really rapid way can you imagine the the knock-on effect of just shifting the way we do exchange and the way we understand yeah what is happening and well just your the thing about the 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 negative look for sure like I was uh, like many people who relate to being called an empath I recently just fully understood like yes like <laughs> I take on way too much from external forces and it's also healing that within myself that has helped me feel able <laughs> to do more and walk more and talk more and just be seen more because that fear of like oh my gosh like I'm gonna receive all this energy from the online world and from people I don't even know and then it's like I mean we have to kind of come right into to that but um you're doing such beautiful work in the world and I'm so honored to to know you now and to connect deeper if you haven't already um everyone should pick up a copy of when plants dream that's the title right yes when plants dream when plants dream yeah. which i just even <laughs> just the title is is just everything it's like <laughs> beautiful and um if there's any projects you want to talk about or just where people can find you yeah well thank you for having me too i loved your questions and your sensitivity and the the waters we canoed down it's really lovely <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the major thing I'm working on right now, um, is supporting communities in the Amazon basin who are impacted by coronavirus. 
um, and who are impacted by the wildfires. So these are the, the, the major things going on right now. Um, and so I work with two organizations. One is called Folk Medicine. Um, it's like a grassroots folk concert. We do live, live stream benefits uh, kind of to celebrate the Amazon and its peoples. And through that way, we work with a number of GoFundMe campaigns and then disperse the funds equally amongst those campaigns. Um, and I also work with the, uh, the Amazon Emergency Fund, which is a historic coalition of different organizations around the world um, in the Amazon Basin and allies in the north. And we're also working to provide emergency aid to people in the forest there. So I imagine I, I recommend checking out either of those and, you know, donating or participating and sharing the word about that. And just, you know, continuing this, this web of reciprocity. The forest is is the heart of this beating planet. And if we're thinking about healing ourselves, that's definitely a beautiful place to, to put our energy into. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I'll make sure to link all of that below to make it easy, accessible for everyone. And yes, let's do it again. There's so much more to speak to. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you received a lot from this conversation or knowledge share, consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. This can be found at patreon.com forward slash soulseedgathering. You can also make a one-time donation directly on our website, soulseedgathering.com. It is here you can also become a Soul Seed House member and receive these conversations and interviews first alongside bonus content, transcripts and this incredible growing library of deep feminine earth-based cultural knowledge. You can also become a Patreon Bloom Fund member. This allows you to support a country or culture or theme or focus that is needing greater awareness and attention in the world. We are entirely independently funded so far, so thank you for every single amount offered to us. It really means so much. And a special thanks to our post-production by Jack Palmer for Alma Chrome. And special thanks to Temple of the Way of Light for offering us this recording by Olivia Aravello, the incredible Shabibo medicine woman, no longer with us, sharing her Ikoro, her medicine song. This was weaved into an incredible track by Jack Palmer. So again, thank you and sending so much love to wherever you are in the world. Thank you.